welcome to Chip Chat, an interview series that connects you with technology experts around the issues that industry is focused on today. And now your host, Allison Klein. Welcome to Chip Chat. My name is Allison Klein. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Dan Stanzione, Associate Vice President for Research at the University of Texas at Austin and Executive Director of the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, Dan, why don't you go ahead and introduce the Texas Advanced Computing Center and its role in terms of driving high-performance compute capability at the University of Texas? Sure. So here at the Texas Advanced Computing Center, which we just call TAC for short, we are part of the University of Texas at Austin. We've been around since about 2001, and we build supercomputing capability not just for the University of Texas, but through our funding from the National Science Foundation to serve some of the biggest scientific challenges in sort of any unclassified setting in open research, primarily at universities around the U.S., but also with some international partners of U.S. universities, with some corporations, nonprofits, et cetera. We've built a number of steadily larger systems throughout the last 20 years or so, including several of the top 10 in the world. And today we support 3,500 or so different projects in everything from astronomy to zoology and most things in between that are computational. So if you have a lot of data or a lot of simulation needs, and you're working usually on government-funded but unclassified research, fair chance you're working with us on one of those projects. Can you talk about some of the organizations that have tapped tax computing that our audience might be familiar with? Sure. Generally, if there's a large scientific instrument or a big simulation challenge, we and our peer centers at some of the other universities tend to be involved. There's been a lot of climate and weather forecasting work. We're finishing up the start of hurricane season. We were just running a bunch of storm surge forecasts around Tropical Storm Barry, but we've been involved in dozens to hundreds of large-scale hurricane and earthquake-type forecasting over the last 15 years or so. We've been involved with the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, you know, discovered the Higgs boson and produces enormous amounts of data. We're one of many sites that provide computing for them. We were involved with LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. That team won the Nobel Prize in 2015 for the first experimental observations of gravitational waves, a prediction that Einstein had made in 1915. It took us 100 years to verify. We provided millions of computational hours towards that work. Again, as um, many teams, uh, we were fairly instrumental in the past few months. In May of 2019, of the first imaging of the M87 black hole corona. So the first time there's been direct imaging of the corona around a black hole. There was a lot of simulation to sort of estimate the mass, et cetera, before they could do the image reconstruction we took part in, as well as some of the data analysis to actually reconstruct some of those images taken at eight telescopes around the world. So we tend to be involved in a lot of the large science, but also a lot of individual investigators doing very large simulations in climate, in materials, solar cell chemistry, synthetic biology, clean coal combustion. You pick a topic, we probably have someone doing that using a system attack. That's impressive. Now, you yourself have been what is called the primary investigator for a number of different HPC projects, including, and I love the code names for these systems, Stampede 2, Wrangler, and now Frontera. Tell me what it means to be the principal investigator and talk a little bit about what Frontera has represented in terms of the latest implementation for TAC. 
Yeah, so principal investigator just means in sort of the NSF, National Science Foundation parlance, that you're the first name on the grant, which means it's your fault when anything goes wrong and you have primary responsibility for writing the annual report, which all the other investigators will do their best to get out of at almost any expense. So for the various and sundry systems, and we've built a lot, you know, that means together with many, many people here at TAC, we architect the system, put together the proposal for it, design, deploy it with our vendor partners, and then operate it for the life of the system, including fairly direct support, occasionally code tweaks and stuff like that for scientists. And as you mentioned, just Frontera is the newest system that we have, and it's probably the 15th or 16th large-scale system we've deployed, but it is certainly the largest one we've ever done. One interesting thing about supercomputing is if you keep doing it over time, you're doing the largest thing you've ever done over and over again because Intel keeps making our chips faster, among other things. But this is really a milestone for us in that it's a top five machine in the world. It was just ranked in the June top 500 list, a list that comes out twice a year. The June one's announced at the International Supercomputing Conference in Germany. And we were the number five machine in the world, the largest machine in any academic institution anywhere in the world behind sort of two very large-scale sort of national-scale systems in China and two large-scale systems at the Department of Energy Labs in the United States. And, you know, borrowing those four, we're the largest machine anywhere in the world. And we feel like we're the largest sort of general-purpose computing machine anywhere for the widest range of scientific applications because all four of those systems in front of us use some version of a specialized processor, whether it's GPUs or special accelerators that they built in China that are only available in China, all of which require you to adapt your code to them and, you know, work great on some problems, not so great on some other problems. But we've built around general purpose CPUs, so we think for some problems we're probably the fastest machine in the world, but we're certainly the largest that can tackle all the different computational challenges across science. Fantastic. Now, When you look at Frontera and you peel back underneath the hood, tell me a little bit about some of the architectural choices that you made in this solution and how you've deployed some of Intel technology here. Sure. So we have Intel up and down the system and the core of the system and the primary processors. So, you know, we treat it as one large computer when we talk about Frontera and one peak performance number of 39 petaflops or so. But in reality, it's 8,000 servers that we've specially hooked together to build this, 8,008 in the primary compute partition, each of which have two of the Intel second-generation scalable Xeon processors. So we have 16,016 of those chips that we can put towards sort of a single large simulation at a time. We have a bunch more in storage servers and other compute partitions and stuff, but that's the big partition is these 16,016 processors, each of which has 28 processor cores. So We have hundreds of thousands of available processor cores. And as I mentioned earlier, we've really focused on sort of the general purpose case here. We've been through lots of kinds of systems with lots of kinds of technology. And whereas the technology changes pretty rapidly, uh, the programmers don't, right? We still have the same humans writing Mm -hmm. the codes. And these codes are enormously complicated, hundreds of thousands of lines, usually several generations of programmers. Many of them have been under steady development for 30 or 35 years for the big community codes that get used, you know, with hundreds of graduate students and postdocs contributing to them over the years. So they adapt kind of slowly. So for this system to get the very large scale and to have it be as broadly applicable as possible to all of those users, since we've seen when we change the architecture, how much trouble some people have adapting. We not only went with 
the most widely used architecture in the world in the Xeon that we're sure every code works on. But we also went with the fastest possible individual processor we could get, which for our case meant that we went to the very top bin of the Xeons, to the parts that are 205 watts per chip, which presents lots of interesting cooling challenges for us. But to our users, you know, it means higher clock rate, which is essentially free performance without having to adapt their code and go through years of struggle on a system that only lasts about five years before we have to buy the next one. So we've gone to a completely liquid-cooled infrastructure for these, which means we have lots of available thermal overhead so we can run at even higher clock rates than the chips are nominally rated for. We've gone to 60,000 watts per cabinet in a, a relatively small, it's sort of 90 cabinets in three rows, and it takes almost five and a half megawatts um, to run the machine, so enough to run a small city. But because of that, we get much higher clock rate than we've had in the last few generations, which translates to much higher scientific performance. And then we have to couple all that together with fast networks to get the latency down. If we're taking a big problem, say simulating an aircraft wing, and we want to simulate the stress across the wing, you need to know the stress on all your neighbors. So every processor is going to talk to every other processor when you divide that problem up. So we want that to happen as quickly as possible. And then we need very fast storage when we're dealing with some of these large data instruments like the Large Hadron Collider or the Gravitational Wave Observatory, or when we're streaming in a whole bunch of data from storm buoys or other sensors when we're doing storm forecasting. We're both writing out a whole bunch of data, so we need to be able to write to file systems really quickly, but also bringing in a whole bunch of data. So fast networking, fast storage to sort of balance all those processors, a whole lot of memory, but really the Xeon is at the core of everything. Now, when you look at the next generation of Xeon Scalable, which we announced earlier this year, there's not many customers on the planet that delve deep into our architecture to get every single bit of performance like TAC does. Tell me about what you see in the latest generation of Xeons that will drive benefit to your scientists as they look for that next level of performance to take their computations further. Yeah, so there's a number of things, some that hit sort of everybody and some that just hit particular groups of people. But the particular version of the processor that we picked, as I mentioned, has a very high clock rate compared to the last couple of generations. Um, but not only that, we have some balance. So we used the first generation of processor in a large chunk, along with some other specialized processors of our Stampede 2 supercomputer that we deployed about two years ago. Um, and even that machine still 19th in the world at the moment and is doing all sorts of different science, but if you sort of look at the jump from the first generation to the second generation between those two machines, we have an increase in clock rate, but that doesn't always help by itself unless you can balance out the rest of the system. So we have a few more cores, we have a higher clock rate, we have faster memory bandwidth to go with that. The memory channels on the chip run at a higher speed so that we get balanced performance. We still have lots of cache, which is very important to getting performance in terms of cache memory. We have the long vector units, which people are still adapting to using the full 512 bits, but that was introduced in the previous generation, and we still see more and more uptake over time of that into the second generation. We have the new VNNI instructions that are part of the deep learning boost set of things that are in this processor, and particularly for the inferencing side of machine learning, the half-precision instructions that we can put into the libraries to build TensorFlow and some of the other machine learning frameworks around should benefit from the boost that's there, and those are new instructions with the second generation. But really, it's both that general purpose that every code in the world works, and then that sort of broadly balanced performance that we look for in these chips. What comes next for you guys in terms of your next pursuit? 
And where do you think the high-performance computing industry is going as a whole in terms of the next target for scientific discovery? You know, we're at the very early days of getting Frontera going. We're still in what we call the early user operations phase. So we have the first 37 science projects running on the machine today at steadily larger scale. And we have some cosmology runs that'll be the very first and largest of their kind. I think we have some material science runs that'll be in the same class. We're going to do a whole next generation of storm forecasting for some of the hurricanes coming up this summer. For us, this is the start of five years of operations, so we'll be adding a lot of people and really trying to exploit. You know, with each of these systems, when we have new scale, there's a lot of sort of human work to catch up to our ability to run, to tune the codes. But there's always a next system around the corner uh, because there's a sort of unceasing demand for the kind of computational power, far more than we can meet today for large-scale supercomputing. But as we build more powerful systems, the demand will kind of feed on itself because we know there's a lot of challenges as we move into the exascale era and even beyond that scientifically we're not just ready to do yet. I mentioned earlier the Large Hadron Collider and the discovery of the Higgs boson. That took hundreds of millions of computing hours to do data analysis. They're upgrading that instrument to what they call the highlight runs in the next few years, the HLLHC. The data volume, I think, will be 20 to 50 times what it was in the original one. So to get to sort of the next generation of particle physics, we're likely to need 20 times the computing. If you look at our ability to look out in the universe, you look at instruments like the Square Kilometer Array, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, the Giant Magellan Telescope, all of them are going to produce data at just sort of unthinkable volumes. And then there's a really long and fascinating list of challenges in life sciences, personalized medicine, you know, so whether we're talking about the fundamental nature of the universe or can I get a better cell phone or everything in between, all of these have this voracious appetite both for an aggregate amount of computing and the complexity and scale of single simulations. That was really inspirational. Thanks so much for the time today. It's such a pleasure to hear about what TAC is doing, and I can't wait to hear about even more scientific discovery that is driven on TAC computers. Thanks very much for having me. Visit ChipChat online at intel.com slash chipchat. And for more information on data center technologies, visit intel.com slash bigdata, intel.com slash cloud, and intel.com slash data center optimization. 